Welcome to Vino Vidi Vici, a podcast on the history of wine. I'm your host, Emily, and not only do I have a passion for wine, but I'm also a huge history buff. I've always wondered about the origins of this magnificent beverage. It's a drink we share with friends, it's used in religious ceremonies around the world, and people even pay millions for it. It feels like it has been ingrained in our history since the beginning, but that wasn't always the case. In this podcast, I'll take you through the history behind the bottle, from the earliest evidence in the Taurus mountain range to modern day, and show that wine is more than just a drink you consume. It takes you on an adventure, spanning the globe and connecting people through food, culture, and language. On today's episode, we'll be discussing some of the earliest evidence of wine production in the world and the theories around its origins. So sit back, grab a glass of your favorite wine, and let's dive in. The hunt for the origin of wine is challenging to say the least. Grapes grow naturally in many regions of the world. However, identifying who discovered that grapes could be turned into wine and domesticated the first vines is still unclear and will likely remain that way for the foreseeable future. Wine domestication predates written records, and many of the containers used to store the earliest wines were likely made of organic material like animal hides that could not stand the test of time. Wine is also an organic material, so naturally the liquid evaporates with age, leaving only traces of what was once there. In the search for the earliest wine, archaeobotanists, which is a job that I did not know existed until I began this journey, are often looking for residue left over from the wine in pottery shards. This residue can show traces of the substances found in wine, such as tartaric acid and malvidin. Tartaric acid occurs naturally in grapes and during the winemaking process, and is responsible for the crystallized, salt-like deposit that sometimes shows up at the bottom of your wine glass. Malvidin is a pigment that gives red grapes their color, so this substance is often associated with red wine production. Archaeobotanists also look at the grape seeds, or pips, at archaeology sites to see if there are signs that the seeds have been domesticated. Wild grape seeds tend to have irregular shapes and are not consistent from one plant to the next, whereas domesticated seeds often have more uniformity. However, this is not always the case, adding an extra layer of difficulty to the task of analyzing these. As with all things wine, you will find that nothing is straightforward and there are always exceptions to the rules. Another curveball thrown at researchers is winemakers thousands of years ago produced their wine in a drastically different way than modern wines. The grape juice was often mixed with herbs, spices, and honey to make the wine more palatable and sweeter for the ancient drinker. Tree resin was also added to the wines to protect the wine from oxidation, similar to sulfur dioxide's use in today's wines. Despite all of these challenges, archaeobotanists have made huge strides in the hunt for the earliest wine. One thing that historian Rod Phillips notes in his book, 9,000 Years of Wine, which I found really fascinating, is that wine is often described as being discovered, whereas beer was invented. This is because grape fermentation can occur naturally, whereas beer fermentation has to be intentional. On this path to wine discovery, there are two prevailing theories on the origin of wine. 
The first is known as the Paleolithic Hypothesis. This theory suggests, as you probably guessed, that wine was discovered in the Paleolithic period and was likely a gradual discovery that occurred in multiple locations by different people over many years. This theory is a little boring for those of us that want to put a face to the inventor behind this intoxicating drink, but it does make a lot of sense. The theory goes that as hunters and gatherers collected grapes in baskets or animal hides, the weight of the grapes would naturally crush the grapes at the bottom of the container. As the juice sat at the bottom, the yeast from the grape skins would cause the grapes to start the fermentation process, leading to a buzzworthy juice at the bottom of the container, which we now call wine. After our ancient ancestors made this accidental discovery, they would likely try to replicate the process over and over again to perfect the recipe. Although it is plausible that wine was discovered in the Paleolithic period, hunters and gatherers did not have the means for large-scale wine production yet. The wild vines that our Paleolithic ancestors would have encountered were not hermaphroditic like domesticated vines, so only half of the vines produced fruit. This means, in order to produce wine at any scale, you really need to work with domesticated vines. And the domestication of plants for agriculture was not invented until the Neolithic period. Pottery that could store the wine for longer periods of time was also not invented in the ancient Near East until the Neolithic period, or around the 7th millennium BC. Another theory that exists, the Noah hypothesis, takes a completely different approach. This theory gives wine its origin story and suggests that wine was discovered by one person in one region at one time, and that wine production spread out from there through trade. Most of you are probably familiar with the tale of Noah's Ark from the Bible, which gives this hypothesis its name. In this story, Noah is told of an impending flood so great that it will wipe out all of the people on earth. He is instructed by God to build an ark. This ark is meant to house his family and two of every animal in existence. As the rain begins to fall, Noah, his family, and the animals remain safe on the ark. After they have been on the boat for 150 days, the water starts to subside. Eventually, Noah begins sending out birds to see if land is nearby. If the bird does not return, they have found another place to perch. This goes on until Noah's Ark finally lands on Mount Ararat. Now you are probably wondering what this story has to do with wine, and if you were skimming Genesis, you might have missed it. After Noah makes landfall, Genesis chapter 9 verses 20 to 21 says, Noah, a man of the soil, was the first to plant a vineyard. He drank some of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. That's all it says about the first wine ever made. The author provides no explanation of how Noah planted the vineyard or produced the wine and quickly glosses over this crucial part of the story, or at least the crucial part for us. Other versions of this Noah story can be found in the book of Jubilees, chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, and in one of the Dead Sea Scrolls known as the Genesis Apocryphon. Both of these stories say that Noah planted a vineyard and that, after four years, harvested the grapes and turned them into wine. On the year following the vintage, Noah drank the wine and became drunk. A few things are interesting about all three versions of this great flood story. Not only do they acknowledge that Noah was the first vintner, but they also claim that he was the first to succumb to wine's intoxicating effects. 
It's clear that when these pieces were written, their audience was familiar with wine and its production. I found the Jubilees in Dead Sea Scroll version especially interesting, since most vines do not begin producing fruit, or at least good fruit, until they are at least four years old. The author of these texts must have been very familiar with viticulture at the time of the writing. Historians believe that the book of Genesis was written around 2000 to 1000 BC. However, the oral tradition of this story was likely much older. Many ancient creation stories also include stories of a great flood that sound reminiscent to the one found in Genesis. One of the most famous flood stories can be found in the Epic of Gilgamesh, an ancient Sumerian text written on cuneiform tablets around 2000 BC. The Epic of Gilgamesh follows the adventures of King Gilgamesh, a powerful man who is always up for a good fight. At one point, Gilgamesh goes in search of everlasting life, fearful of his own mortality having lost his best friend in Kidu. He searches for a man named Utnapishtim, who is known as the survivor of the Great Flood and the only mortal man to be given everlasting life by the gods. When Gilgamesh finally locates Utnapishtim, the two chat and Utnapishtim recounts the story of the Great Flood to his guest. He explains that in a dream, he was instructed by the gods to build a boat to save him and his family from an impending deluge. The boat takes seven days to build, and on the seventh day, he says there was a great celebration. After the celebration, the rain begins. It continues for six days and six nights. On the seventh day, the sky cleared, and the world was silent with no land in sight. Utnapishtim grounds his boat on Mount Nicere. After another seven days, he uses the same bird test that Noah exercised and implored the gods for their help. They gave him eternal life and took him in the distance to live at the mouth of the rivers, which was likely where the Tigris and Euphrates rivers meet. The Epic of Gilgamesh does not say that Utnapishtim was the first vintner, but wine does play a significant role throughout the piece. Upon the completion of the boat, there is a great celebration, and Utnapishtim gives, quote, the ship writes, wine to drink as though it were river water, raw wine and red wine and oil and white wine. Many believe that Mount Ararat, where Noah supposedly landed, was likely somewhere in the Taurus mountain range in what is now southern Turkey. Mount Nicere, where Utnapishtim landed, was likely somewhere in the Zagros mountain range or what is now northwestern Iran. Both of these mountains lie within an area known as the Fertile Crescent. This is a semicircle of land in the Middle East that goes from northern Egypt following the Nile River, then spreading northeast following the path of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Some of the oldest civilizations and earliest signs of agriculture began in this region, also known as the ancient Near East. If Noah was the first to plant a vineyard, this would have been the ideal location at the time. Some marine geologists have tried to find geological evidence proving that the Great Flood happened. In 1996, William Ryan and Walter Pittman put forward a controversial theory, suggesting that over 7,500 years ago, there was a flood of epic proportions in the ancient Near East. Following the Ice Age, sea levels rose at unprecedented rates. The area that is now the Black Sea used to be a valley with freshwater lakes and rivers. As the Mediterranean Sea rose, a landmass separating the Mediterranean from the valley broke, giving way to massive flooding. 
Eventually, the valley was completely filled with salt water, becoming what is now known as the Black Sea. This flood would have been so catastrophic that the stories of it would be passed down from generation to generation and remembered for millennia. This theory has yet to be proven, and as I mentioned before, it is considered to be pretty controversial among historians and archaeologists. Other archaeologists theorize that the frequent flooding of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers likely inspired the tale of the Great Flood, not some catastrophic event like the one Ryan and Pittman described. With all of these parallels between these two stories and the presence of flood myths in other ancient texts, could these stories be based on a historical event, or were they just fables passed down from generation to generation? Recent DNA analysis conducted by a team of researchers, including Patrick McGovern, Carol Meredith, and Jose Vulamo, have unearthed some fascinating results that support the NOAA hypothesis. In one study published in the scientific journal Plant Genetic Resources, they found that domesticated grapes in Western Europe are closer genetically to wild Eurasian grapes than the local wild European grapes, suggesting that the lineage of the domesticated vine likely came from somewhere in Eastern Europe and was then transported to Western Europe through trade. Other research conducted as part of McGovern's Ancient DNA Grape and Wine Project found that the ancestor, quote, of the domesticated Eurasian grapevine was to be found in the South Caucasus or the Taurus Mountains of southeastern Turkey, end quote, which is the area where Noah supposedly produced the first wine. Based on this evidence, the Noah hypothesis looks more and more promising. Although we may never know the person who discovered wine, hopefully one day soon we will be able to pinpoint the area where the first vine was domesticated or trace the DNA lineage to a specific wild grape, taking us one step closer to discovering the origins of this intoxicating commodity. On the hunt for the earliest evidence of wine, Patrick McGovern, an archaeologist and the leading voice on ancient wine and beer, has also led many of the teams who have uncovered some of the oldest attestations of wine. In 2004, McGovern and a team of researchers discovered the earliest evidence of a fermented beverage made with grapes in Jiahu, China. This discovery was made by analyzing organic material absorbed into ancient pottery that dated back to around 7000 BC. Although this is the earliest evidence of fermented grapes, the concoction in these jars was not wine. It was a combination of fermented rice, honey, and fruit. In 2017, McGovern and his team uncovered the earliest evidence of wine at an archaeological site dating back to 6,000 to 5,800 BC. The discovery was made at a site that was previously populated by a Neolithic culture known as the Shulaveri Shomu, about 20 miles outside of Tbilisi, Georgia. This group of people were known for making advances in agriculture and pottery in the early Neolithic period. We now know that they were also some of the first people to produce wine in the world. Shirts of pottery were analyzed at the sites, and archaeologists found residue of tartaric acid absorbed into the clay. As you may recall from earlier in the episode, tartaric acid occurs naturally during the wine fermentation process, and is a telltale sign that pottery contained wine thousands of years ago. On some of the jars, there also appeared to be decorations depicting grapes and vines along the brim. These jars were unstable with a small base that jutted out into a wide basin. 
It would have been almost impossible for these to stand upright, especially ones filled with liquid. Although not proven yet, it makes you wonder whether these jars were buried in the ground similar to Quevery in modern-day Georgia. In Georgia, many wine producers ferment their wine in large earthenware pots called Quevery. These are buried in the ground and tend to have an impossibly small base which is only made stable through burying them. Could these jars found at the Shulaveri Shilmu sites have been the earliest examples of this wine production tradition in Georgia? We may never know, but it is exciting to think that this tradition could have started thousands of years ago. Prior to the discovery in Georgia, the oldest wine evidence was found near the Zagros Mountains in Iran. This is close to the area that Utnapishtim supposedly landed after the Great Flood in the Epic of Gilgamesh. At this archaeological site, McGovern and his team uncovered six 9-liter jars buried in the floor of a home that dated to around 5,400 to 5,000 BC. Two of these jars were examined, and their residue tested positive for tartaric acid and tree resin, which was used to prevent oxidation in ancient wine, similar to the way sulfur dioxide is used in modern wines. If we assume that all six containers found in the house were used for wine, that means just one house in this village stored 54 liters of wine, or what would equate to 72 modern-day bottles. McGovern goes on to theorize that if every household in this village had about 72 bottles of wine at their disposal, that would mean wine production was a large-scale business over 7,000 years ago. Archaeologists and archaeobotanists continue to make new discoveries every day that are taking us a step closer to understanding the origins of the first domesticated vines. Whether wine was a gradual discovery, starting in the Paleolithic period, or was discovered by one person or group of people thousands of years ago, what we do know is that by the mid to late Neolithic period, wine was already playing a significant role in many ancient civilizations, and was a commodity that was heavily produced, traded, and esteemed. Early Neolithic cultures, like the Shulaveri Shomu in Georgia, laid the groundwork for what is now a multi-billion dollar global industry, with production expanding to almost every continent in the world. Its influence on culture has been significant and would not have been possible without the ingenuity of our early ancestors. All source material referenced throughout today's podcast will be included in the show notes for you to check out. On next week's episode, we will continue our journey by diving into Mesopotamian wine production and the influence wine had on its culture. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Vino Vidivici. Until next time, cheers! Cheers!